I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 283 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guest today is Katrina McCook. She's here to talk about her new book, Invoking the Spirits, The Occult Influences in Ezra Pound's Pisan Cantos. Katrina is going to be having an event at Morbid Anatomy alongside Mitch Horowitz on Sunday, March 10th. The event is hosted by myself and Carl Abrahamson as part of our Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult series. Mitch Horowitz will be presenting Modern Occultism and the Need for a Limitless Search, and Katrina will be presenting her work on Invoking the Spirits, the Occult Influences in Ezra Pound's Peace and Cantos. Join us. Information can be found at morbidanatomy.org and psychartcult.org. As always, links to everything can be found at the homepage renderingunconscious.org and in the show notes for this episode. As well, Mitch Horowitz has an upcoming class that starts on Thursday, February 22nd on icons of modern esoterica. Visit his website, mitchhorowitz.com for more information. The class is going to be held weekly on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Rendering Unconscious recently won the 2023 Credeva Award for Digital Media from the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis. Huge, huge thanks to all the guests fans, and listeners of Rendering Unconscious Podcast over the past six years. I couldn't have done it without you. If you enjoy Rendering Unconscious Podcast and are not yet supporting it, you can support the podcast at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. We do post exclusive content every week at our Patreon and have just recently started podcast on Patreon itself, where every Monday we post not only about magical and creative and psychoanalytic practices and ideas, theories and practices, but also have an audio component in addition to the written word and photographs. If you'd like to get more inside my mind and listen to me talk more intimately about my creative, magical, and psychoanalytic practices and thinking, then do join us at Patreon. Basically, the episodes every week at Magic Monday Podcast on Patreon are talking more about how these practices have influenced day-to-day life, not only on a day-to-day basis, but also over time. I've been looking at the longevity of my magical, creative, and psychoanalytic work and tying all the knots together to make sense of things and see the synchronicities that have been at play throughout the years. So if this sounds of interest to you, then do join me at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. If you prefer Substack, I've also recently started a Substack where I do post this weekly exclusive content also at Substack. That's Vanessa23Carl.substack.com. I've also added a make a donation button to the main website so that you can make a one-time donation or ongoing donation via PayPal if you prefer. Thank you so much for your support. Rendering Unconscious is a labor of love. I've been doing this for six years now. I haven't received any grants, money from outside sources or advertising. I do everything myself and I do it 
because I care about the field and I believe in the practice of psychoanalysis. And everyone who joins our Patreon community shows me that they appreciate all the work that I've put in to this over the years. So thank you very much for that support. As usual, there is a video for this episode that you can watch at YouTube. Just search for Trapar Film at YouTube. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film. Hi, Katrina. It's so good to see you. I'm so excited to talk about your book, Invoking the Spirits, the Occult Influence in Ezra Pound's Peace and Cantos. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So you have to tell me, how did you get into this topic? Well, I think as uh, most academics have a story, I was taking a graduate level course at Clemson University. That's where I got my master's degree. Um, And then there was this class on intro to modernism. And it was everything from literature to poetry, the whole nine yards, right? A little bit of art thrown in. Um, And I loved it. I'd never studied or come across modernists like that era before. And I was fascinated. Um, But in the class, we, uh, we had this little little book. Um, and it was the Peas and Cantos by Ezra Pound. Um, and my professor introduced it as well. This is an interesting work and it might be difficult to understand, but it's open to interpretation. I was like, cool, that's different, you know, versus things that we've all read like Ulysses or, um, what have you, lots of Yates. Um, so I did a deep dive into it and I decided that's what I wanted to write my thesis on. Um, and it was such an, it's such an open-ended, uh, work and it's open to interpretation, which I, which I like, cause I feel though, and we might talk about some of these themes of exclusivity later, um, especially in the world of literature, right? Um, the Peas and Cantos is open to, you know, your thoughts, your interpretations, in addition to whatever Pound may have meant for it to say to his readers. Um, and I thought that was very unique, um, as well as the, the languages he switches from, you know, here's a little bit of Mandarin or here's some Italian and here's some English and all these different references kind of tied together in this, you know, swirling book that is the Peas and Cantos while he was in like a, you know, very stressed out emotional state in prison. Um, so it's, it's unique to what it is. Um, and so that's why I was kind of pulled towards it. Um, I did my thesis, my master's thesis on the Peas and Cantos, um, which I think is how, uh, it led to us us meeting. Um, so it's been very interesting to share that work because a lot of folks haven't haven't delved into it. They've heard of the cantos, um, but not specifically the Pisans. So it's it's an honor for me to be able to share that research and my thoughts with it with everyone. Absolutely. Yeah, and to me that that indicates that it's a real work of art when it's like really can have effect on the different individuals who encounter it and is open to interpretation in that way. Um, and yeah, we I found you online because we had the conference Rewriting the Future, um, and that was in 2019. Wow, that's five years ago already. And we had it at Brunenberg Castle, which was the castle that he lived in after after this incarceration um, with his daughter. Um, and yeah, and we had we had it there, and I said, well, we have to have someone talking about Pound if we're going to be at his castle, and then I looked up and found this, and I was like, oh my god, this is absolutely perfect for our conference, and I'm so glad that now it's like in book form. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you and Carl both so much for inviting me to the conference and for publishing my little book, like it's been, uh, it's been such an incredible journey since there, and I can't believe it's been five years already, that's kind of mind-blowing. Wild. Um, but I think to sit to sit there and be able to read my little work, you know, in such a you know historic place um, with you know his his family there was was quite the honor. Um, and being able to walk through the castle and see some of the things on display, um, it really drove home like how large of a journey and how larger than life he must have been. Um, just the the various artifacts and all of the books. And um, he just had such a wide variety of interests. Um, and I saw a little bit of that peek through when I was doing my research um, for the book. And it's just interesting to think 
how we like to, I think, mentally maybe categorize our favorite authors or writers or artists. Be like, this is who they are. Um, but being in their personal space, their homes, um, and seeing the different, um, like the personal touches there, it really makes you think a little bit differently about them. Yes, this was a person. And yes, they might have had wide ranging interests that changed over the years and differing opinions. Uh, Pound especially, I think, is uh, an interesting poet because he we have younger Pound, which is contrasted with who he was towards the end of his life after his incarceration and how those experiences changed him. Um, so I being in that space and his home was was very special to me. Yeah, it was. And you were on the same panel with his grandson, Siegfried Reschwitz. Yes. Oh, that was great. He had a great talk. Um, I, I did listen panel. to it. Yes, <laughs> it was great. It was wonderful. Oh, it, was, it was such a good experience. Yeah, and I'll link also because I've turned your talk into a podcast previously, like right after the conference. So I'll tell everybody about that as well so they can go and check out the talk and Siegfried's as well. Awesome. Thank you. That's so cool. It is cool. I love this. Um, And that was such a magical space. That was such a magical weekend. Yes. It could just feel the... I don't know. I don't like to say magic in there. I feel like that's a very stereotypical, stereotypical phrase, but that place was very special. Um, yeah. You could just feel like the history and all the stories, you know, like in the space and the walls, it was, it was there. So being there was, was very, it was a very unique, special experience. Um, I don't know. That was so cool. I'm, I'm glad that I got to, to do that. Me too. Yeah, and Sigrid was such a great guide in telling us about the history of the castle and the area and everything as well, in addition to the talk that he gave. It was really Mm -hmm. special and magical. I don't mind saying this magic in the air. (laughs) (laughs) And back to you. Um, Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about what you found through your research? Because it's so interesting. I mean, I had forgotten that uh, that Pound worked with Yeats early on, but of course he did, and how influential that was, and how Yeats is kind of occultism influenced it. I feel like part of my work is like so many people know these figures, but their their occult uh, interests, especially like people like Yeats, who was like very into the occult, um, you know, it just gets kind of pushed to the side in like modern like pop culture. You know, people just like focus on writing, but I, I don't see how you can kind of take the two apart. You know, because they're so it's so important and people often say if if they do acknowledge these things at all they'll say like oh he dabbled in the occult but people don't generally Mm. dabble in the occult it's kind of like a different worldview when you have a magical worldview and I feel like that's so like minimizes things so much yeah I really enjoyed I had to do some background work uh with Yates of course um before I hopped into pound uh when I was writing the book Um, but he also lived a very interesting life. Um, but I would say starting with pound, there's kind of two schools of thought, which I do mention in the book where, um, there's the initial thought that he first encountered the occult. Uh, there was a concert pianist, uh, Heyman, and he was interested in her and she was interested in the occult and, arguably in like a trendy way, like it was trendy to be, you know, read occult books or what have you at the time in the early 1900s. And so he, of course, kind of like, well, let's have something to talk about perhaps. And so he, he read some of the things that she was into. Um, And then the second idea is that it really fully, his interest in the occult um, was blown in with the big storm that is Yates and, you know, the overpowering, uh, figurehead he was for occult study at, at the time. Um, now, I would say the thing that was most interesting to me was making the connection between Yeats's occultism and Pound's worldview at the time. Um, he met Yeats in the early 1900s, but pre-World War One. right? World War One was 1914 and 1918. Um, but in 1913, I think everyone is familiar with uh, the poem um, in a station of the Metro with Pound, a very, an imagist poem, you know, pre-modernist. And I feel like it's still probably mentioned in a lot of literature classes in high school. And that's, I think, everyone's first introduction to young Pound. You know, he, he was like wide-eyed. I want to make a difference in the world literature. I have skill and I want to share that with everyone. Um, and his way in 
was to, of course, let's go run with the big players. Who's the big players in the field at the time of, you know, literature and poetry and who are the movers and shakers? And that, of course, was Yeats and his cohort. Um, so he meets Yeats. And um, as I go into detail in the book, he does uh, get an, an invitation, let's say, uh, to be basically Yeats's secretary um, while Yeats was sequestered at Stone Cottage, which overlaps with World War I timeline-wise. Um, did the pound because he wanted this this idea of exclusivity like you know we're we're special we're different um he called uh him and yates he coined the phrase the order of the brothers minor while they're sequestered away and yates was doing his thing and pound was writing and doing research and assisting um so that's kind of how their relationship developed but at the time um especially in london we have the idea that um the occult becomes more than just like a trend, it, it's like a, a zeitgeist where it just like sweeps all of the parlors and drawing rooms at the time of fashionable people. And let's do seances. Let's speak to the dead. You know, ooh, magical practice. Let's see what happens. And so it became less of a taboo and more of a, a trendy thing. You know, why don't you come over for the weekend? We're going to have a seance. You know, please come over and we'll have a huge party. Um, so that's the time where Pound was coming up with Yates. And what Yates was interested in, in a side, started to become like mainstream, if you will. Um, and at first, I think we could definitely identify that Pound was not convinced, you know, because, uh, you know, Yates's fairies and folk tales and uh, magical experiments. Pound was like, well, I, I'm not sure about all that, you know, because he was a very, I feel, a logical person and wasn't necessarily into things that were unseen. Um, and so he... I think had a difficult time suspending his disbelief, whereas Yates was fully immersed, you know, um, hermetic order of the golden dawn, you know, let's do, you know, here's, we're going to do seances here every weekend and we're going to write about it. We're going to research and we're going to tell everyone about it. Um, whereas Pound was kind of in the background be like, this is great. You know, I'm glad that I'm getting to be around all these influential people. Um, but it wasn't necessarily his jam, I guess you could say the magical mm -hmm. part of it. So it was interesting when he began to work with um, Mead, George Mead, and The Quest was a magazine at the time. He started to voluntarily submit items to be published. And so you could kind of see him not necessarily diving right in to, you know, the extent that Yeats was into the magical world and, um, and mysticism. But he was interested in it from a perspective of hmm, secret knowledge exclusivity, you know, those are things that I want to foster within, you know, my movement or my writing. Um, and so he was drawn to it for, I think, those reasons. Um, and at the time, he was also very influential. And he, I think famously, we've all read Ulysses, I think, at some point in our lives. And Pound was an advocate for James Joyce, for his writing to become serialized. That's how we, you know, he I guess, became famous, if you could use that phrase back then. Um, he was also an influential voice for, um, for T.S. Eliot, uh, Proof Rock, and that was published in Poetry Magazine. So you can see that his friendship and relationship with Yeats and, you know, that cohort of the folks that became, uh, willingly or not, uh, the modernist movement um, really put them on a worldwide stage. You know, Pound points at someone and it's like, this guy, he has talent, everyone pay attention. You know, he he became an influential figure separate from Yates on his own. And so I think that sort of sets up the idea of, you know, he had these grand plans of let's write an epic um, because he had watched Yates and various figures. And of course, Ulysses in and of itself is is a very large, hefty volume. Um, and But Pound wanted to make his own legacy. And so the idea of the cantos came forth. And the cantos were written roughly 19, starting in 1915-ish to 1962 is the finale of the cantos. And of course, the Pisans are, are right smack in the middle of, of that timeline. Um, but we kind of see his progression from the earlier cantos. Canto one does pick up the story of, of Ulysses, um, the mythical figure. Um, and he shows up again in the Pisan cantos. And so we can kind of see like loosely woven in throughout the entire cantos, the Pisans, you know, 
being a little bit more to me, I think, than uh, some of the other parts is that he doesn't let go of the idea of the occult, even loosely speaking. And he's interested in myth and mythos and mysticism from Canto number one, starting with Ulysses. We have the, you know, the gods and goddesses, the fantasy world of, you know, we have Dante and Homer showing up everywhere. Um, And so you can kind of see that he was curious from the beginning. Um, So by the time we get to World War II, of course, we move away from, you know, younger pound into a different era altogether. And by then, you know, we're talking, you know, years and years after he had first met Yates, um, he had moved to Paris, you know, he had become a publisher and influencer for, um, for lack of a better word at the time. But in 1939, he was in Italy. And with um, the advent of World War II, he had all of these ideas about, um, he was very anti, anti-capitalist government. And so some of the sentiments at the time that now we kind of shy away from talking about, maybe perhaps if we want to draw parallels with occultism, kind of like, do we talk about it? Do we not? Um, I think we've come full circle to those ideas today with both the occult and with the, you know, fascist propaganda. Um, So he had, circling back to Pound, he started a radio show uh, for Radio Rome um, in 1941. So he recorded all these little, basically snippets of radio broadcasts and he was paid for them. So that was how he was earning an income at the time. Um, But these broadcasts were for all intents and purposes, anti-American. So his sentiments were again, anti-capitalism, anti-usury. He was open to the ideals that Mussolini was putting forth. Um, And so those are things that I think today translate to perhaps making folks uncomfortable with diving into other, other things that pound may have said, or, you know, the opinions that he held at the time. But I don't think, I think it's important to remember that that's, that shouldn't invalidate the other things that he said throughout his very long career um, and the other works that he put forth. So just acknowledging that that, those are themes that were in his Radio Rome broadcast. The Pies and Canto specifically, he, he, when he was in prison, so um, facts wise, uh, Mussolini and his mistress were shot in spring of 1945 and April of 1945. Um, the month right after that, uh, Pound was basically taken into custody as an American trader, and they put him into, he made his way through a couple of stops and then ended up in the American detention center near Pisa. Um, he was there from May until November. Um, at least several weeks of that internment was uh, outside and for context, he was in like uh, a small cage outside and um, the Pisan plains are known for like high winds, bad weather. And so he was basically put in this, this cage outside by himself. And because he was a famous figure, people knew who he was. Um, then, of course, they were like, well, maybe we shouldn't put him with the rest of the prisoners. And so he was isolated. Uh, so the Pisan Cantos really picks up with the time where at first he's okay, you know, he's, you know, making do, but eventually he reaches a point as many of us would of just like an emotional break. And so we see that happen in the P's and Cantos where it starts out as kind of, let me see if I can continue writing the Cantos. I'm here, you know, I'm going to work on my epic. And it moves away from that into something very different um, where he arguably starts to make his own seance. He, he falls into the practice of automatic writing, um, which as we know, can be used as a tool for therapy to deal with very high stress situations, or let's, let's let out the demons inside, so to speak. Um, and he was really seeking what I see as palingenesis. Um, and palingenesis, of course, is uh, Greek for um, palin is again, and genesis is birth. And so he was seeking basically the same the same resolution to his story as Ulysses. He was the hero. You know, he had gone through trials and tribulations. Of course, this was the worst one. I want to be reborn into something different, something new. And so he basically walks us through um, the different ghosts from his past and the different situations that he's been through. And he mentions in passing, even while he's going through this emotional break in the Pisan Cantos, he's weaving the story together for us. And of course, uh, falling back to the occult and secret knowledge, 
unless you know a lot about his life story or the, you know, the people that he knew or the things that he were interested in, it might not make a lot of sense, you know? So he, he uses it as the ultimate like initiation ritual to here's what's going on in my head and it's okay. You don't need to know everything, but this is what it's about. Um, it was very controversial too, that in, after he was released and so on and so forth, a few years after um, its publication in 1948, it was actually awarded the Bollingen Prize for poetry. Um, and it was just a scandal because this man who had been a traitor, you know, in America's eyes, his work was identified as here, here's the top prize, because we thought that what you had to say was valid. Um, and so it's still very interesting to me that despite, you know, even in the late 1940s, after the war had concluded, um, you know, America was at home trying to return to normal, so to speak, you know, how can we keep our, our, our wives at home, they don't need to work anymore, the men are back, you know, how can we get the economy back to normal, Th those sorts of things. And, you know, Pound, who was the the ultimate traitor, one could say, according to some news sources, was awarded a top prize for poetry. Um, so I think that's always a really interesting, really interesting wrap up to, you know, his detention and the fact that his story resonated with so many people, um, despite his personal political views. Yeah. And again, that just shows me that this is like a real work of art, you know, processing all of what he's going through in this way and kind of it's really like an unfolding of his mind and like a free associative process through the automatic writing and I remember when you get, talked at the Brunenberg at the at the conference you it was like these like ancestors were coming up and these different figures uh, were coming up from his life and his past and they were kind of present with him kind of helping him through this time um, yeah, and it's such a fascinating process and so important. I feel like that's the best way to use art is to help you get through these things and kind of understand your mind and the unfolding of your mind in that way. And of course, it's great that it resonates with people. It's still like this kind of unfolding of a mind and people can resonate with that in itself, with this like uh, kind of vulnerable process. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. I'm going to, I think I'm going to read this again now. And I've actually, <laughs> I've already read this book twice. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I think I'm going to read it again now, because now I also feel inspired. I'm like, oh, I want to make an epic poem. And maybe I'll start. And maybe in 50 years, I'll have, I'll have one. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's cool. I, before I started, you know, diving into this research, I had never heard of automatic writing before. Um, and so I think learning a little bit about that was just kind of eye opening. Um, and how it's not something that you need to that you have to be interested in the occult or magic or anything like that to try that just removing, you know, any sort of connotations from automatic writing that it's used as a therapy tool is really cool. Um, I, I did a small study when I was writing the book. Um, and I only use 10 people, but I, you know, walk them through basically automatic writing as I could understand it from, uh, like what pound may have done, um, my own inferrals. And so we, we sat everyone down, um, in separate spaces and just clear your mind a few deep breaths and here's 10 minutes, just sit in, right. Just let your hand Right, whatever you're feeling. Don't think anything, you know, please try and keep a blank slate in your mind. And let's see what comes up. And the results were were wild. I it just I was really inspired by it. Um one person came up with um what was like a little beginning of a story, like a small plot line, and they're like, I have no idea where that came from. Uh someone else actually drew on the piece of paper, you know, it's just a standard eight and a half by 11 size. It was a whole picture they had drawn, you know, it was like line, like pencil drawing. Um, and the whole sheet was completely full. And so they were, when they came back and they're like, and this is what I had. And they gave the piece of paper to me. It was, it was amazing because they're like, I didn't know I could do that. And it's just, um, it's interesting because if you, if you take some of these ideas and try and filter the peas and canters through it, he's, I think just, perhaps doing the same thing is using automatic writing in addition to how he understands it as functioning with the occult, bringing back, you know, 
ancestral knowledge or connecting with the spirits or the divine, um, it's also a tool for him to let out some of the extreme stress that he's under. And maybe let's, let's have purpose to the emotions that we're feeling right now. Um, and so, yeah, automatic writing is really neat. There's an interesting book by um, Anita Mool on automatic writing, which I highly recommend. Um, but yeah, it's a fascinating practice. Oh, I'm going to have to check that out. What's her name again? Anita Mull. It's M-U-H-L. Okay, I'm going to save it right now because otherwise I'll forget. And that way I'll look it up. I love automatic writing and different like yeah, surrealist techniques, like exquisite corpse and that kind of thing. And like la- allowing for this free associative method, like in psychoanalysis. I mean, that's really what psychoanalysis people are learning to do is to kind of allow their mind to unfold more freely without your like neurotic kind of ego trying to like structure things for you. And then you can understand more fully, like how your mind is works and how it's connected and, you know, how things are kind of coming up for you um, outside of your like kind of narrow day-to-day view that we have to kind of stay in to do our kind of regular day-to-day lives. It's like a yeah, dreamlike experience in ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's really freeing to, to let your mind go, you know, cause I think we, we forget how maybe stressed out we are, or how many things are on our to-do list. And it's just, you know, it's all in your head. Right. But when you purposefully sit back and you're like, I'm going to let go and maybe let's see what comes out. It's the results can be fascinating. Um, and it's just like such a release to do that, um, especially for folks who are like daily practitioners. Um, it was really interesting. Um, I came across my study, right? A little bit of uh, Yates. Uh, Richard Elman talks about it a lot in his book, uh, The Man in the Mask about Yates, which is really good deep dive into um, uh, Yates's life and some of the magical practices that he had. Um, but he, he considered himself to have a primary spirit guide. Um, so when he was doing his automatic writing practices and um, different magical experiments, he kind of, you know, imagined this, well, not imagined, he believed that he had a Leo Africanus um, on his side, his, um, his spirit guide. And so it's interesting to see even the contrast between what, what Yates's spirit guides were telling him and how he's like, yes, these people are guiding me. And, um, and I can connect with them versus pounds iteration of the same tool, you know, as a more of a way to, uh, to do, I guess, a form of therapy, um, or, and to connect with, yeah, to connect with his past, but not necessarily in like an occult way. And so it's the same practice, but perhaps two different results and two different uh, intentions, um, between the two men. So that was really, that was really interesting to, to read about. Um, yeah, because that's the thing, like, I mean, people don't have to believe like the, that the ancestors are really there. They could think of it like more psychologically, if that's helpful. You know, people can think about these things in different ways and it can still have a really useful effect. Uh, and everybody has these kinds of ancestral influences, whether it's like blood ancestors or just like people who have influenced your development along the way, like different mentors or friends, or especially if you're creative, like a writer or an artist, and you have the, the artists and writers that influenced you and your work along the way. Those I always think of those people as like kind of ancestors of sorts. And, you know, they're like still living in you because they've influenced you and kind of become a part of you in some way. Yeah, that's so true. Their their knowledge lives on. Um, yeah, their influence. Yeah, That's such like- a cool way to think about it. Yeah. And I like doing like um, William Burroughs, you know, I love the cut up method and William Burroughs talked about like, if you have one of these writers, like if you love Pound or someone else um, and you've like read all of their work and you wish that you, you know, could read more, you can actually like take some of their writing and cut it up and like put it in a box and shake it up and then pull it out. And it's like still their words or like their phrasing that they use, but it's all put together in a new way. And it still kind of like sounds like them because it is them, but it's like them saying new things because it's like making new connections and it's kind of a way to keep their their work going in your own way oh that's really cool I wonder what the result of doing that with the peas and cantos would be because it's already like a mishmash one could say of different that would be that would be really cool to try I need to do that yeah (laughs) yeah I'm gonna see maybe we have an extra copy around here I can order like a cheaper copy 
online yeah. or something, cut it up because, um, yeah, because I bet it would say some really interesting stuff, especially because it's like already free associative. The cut the cut up process is kind of similar in that like free associative way because things come together and it seems like random, but then I don't know if it's our mind that like makes the meaning, you know, and it's like, I don't know. I just love it. Yeah, that's so interesting because you would never get the same message twice. It would be impossible. Oh, that's so cool. Exactly. Yeah. And I tend to like paste down my cutouts but like I have like an artist friend like named Joan Pope who like when she does things like she'll cut up pieces that she wants to use in her collages and then she'll photograph them when she's laid it out and and like make it digital and then use the print as the image that she displays and that way she still has the elements and can put them back in the box and use them again in the future which I think is also a really cool idea yeah oh that's really neat yeah that's awesome her on too and talk about it (laughs) Okay, so now I'm in, uh, inspired to make my own epic poem and to c- do cut-ups with poetry, specifically the Peace Encounters. I remember you also talking about, like you mentioned before, like how you had all these different languages, like all of a sudden there'd be like Chinese characters and things. Will you talk a little about that? And like, why, why, why does he know Chinese? Like, what was that influence about? He, uh, well, in his younger years, he went through an Ernest Fenelosa phase, um, So Fenelosa was an American orientalist and educator um, who made a significant contribution to the preservation of traditional art in Japan. Um, But Pound was interested in it because he had um, the, they called it the no mask and it's N-O-H, which you can Google. There's lots of examples online, but it was basically a traditional uh, mask making method. Um, which of course held a lot of meaning. But you remember at Brunenberg, they had some of the the masks hanging on the walls. Yeah. Um, and so Finalosa at the time basically just documented, um, here's here's what the no masks are, um, how they're used in performance um, and how they're interpreted and the different masks mean various things, right? And there's, you could say hundreds of iterations of the no mask. And Pound went through, I guess you could say a, a phase of being very interested in uh, Orientalism, um, as it was called at the time. Um, So we have, you know, influences from Chinese, Japanese, um, and various um, artistic expressions. And so he wanted to, as a part of his intention to make an epic poem, um, he wanted to pull in the ideas that there are cultural references that are outside of what we would consider the norm. Um, So he was very much into, here's a thing that I learned about. Again, remember that he was into uh, exclusive knowledge. This is something that perhaps I know and I'm going to share with everyone else. And so he was inspired by Finelos's work. And so he weaves through references to different stories from the no masks and that those cultural references, those folk tales, if you will, um, into his cantos. Um, and they do show up in the Pisan cantos as well. Um, so we have different Chinese characters. And so he switches from Italian, a passage in Italian, to a few lines later, we have some Chinese characters or Mandarin show up. And it's just like he he understands what he's trying to say, even though you or I may not speak either one of those languages. And we only speak English. So something in the the text of what he says on that page will be able to read, just not the whole thing. Um, right. So which would take you back to he wanted to, if nothing else, educate other people. And that's a running thing that we can see throughout his work um, from finding and helping young authors get published, those who he thought could be influential, uh, whether it be with art or with, you know, the vorticism movement when we had that, or let's, let's, um, there's a phrase that I think Longenbach uses in his book um, about Yates and Pound's time together at Stone Hodge, where he's like, Pound is pulling everyone into the next century with him, because he felt like that um, in his younger years, poetry was outdated. It was Victorian, you know, it wasn't trendy and he thought that interest in it was fading. And so in his, you know, idea that writing the epic, his epic poem, you know, let's include as much culture as we can. Let me educate people on things that they've maybe never heard about before. Um, Or maybe they don't know how to read and I'm going to put it in my work and you're going to be curious and you're going to go find out about it. And it will have come from me, right? I'm, I'm the teacher, 
you know, I'm the purveyor of wisdom. Um, and we even in his, you know, mental state being what it was during his imprisonment, he still does that in the Pisan and Cantos. And so the, the, the notes, the appendix is a huge in the Pisan and Cantos because there's hundreds of references to things that perhaps you or I just aren't offhand familiar with, you know, and languages um, being one of those things. And so that's, that's the fascinating thing as well, that his mind worked in between those different languages where here's one phrase and this is my intention. And he carries it through, you know, three different languages in a single passage um, to, to make his ultimate point. Um, And I think that's something that he perhaps put on fast forward in the Pisan Cantos. We do see that throughout the Cantos as a whole, where he kind of switches back and forth between subjects sometimes, or um, it's a, you know, an amalgamation of a a few different things in the same passage. And it might seem confusing, but the Pisan Cantos, he's really like, okay, this is my last chance to impart any wisdom, anything I want to leave with, you know, this is my legacy. The last thing I might write, what do I have to say? And he just lets it go, you know? Um, so I do think that part of the, the, the mish, the mishmash of subject matter, the different languages, I do think part of that was purposeful. I do think also a lot of it was through the automatic writing, um, that I believe he conducted for the Pisan Cantos, um, because it's just such an interesting idea of, um, even sometimes warring ideas within the same canto uh, that you're like, well, I don't know how to interpret all of this. And it's okay. He's not asking you to come to a conclusion. He's just asking you to witness this with him, you know? Um, So I think that's a very interesting thing. And it's definitely open to interpretation because what I see in it might be something totally different than what, what you or someone else reads on the page. Um, And I think to him, that would have been an ultimate success to both, um, you know, boggle some minds, but also be like, yes, this man had a lot of knowledge and a lot of things to teach the world, uh, which I think is very evident in the Pisan Cantos specifically. Yeah, that makes sense too. I mean, that's how the unconscious is. Like there are contradicting elements that are there at the same time and that that's just how people are. And so if he's writing in this associative way and like, and, and then he probably has these connections between the different languages where one reminds him of another, reminds him of another phrase in another and kind of jumps around in that way if he, if he, if he knows these different uh, languages and their symbolism, you know. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. Well, I'm so excited and I'm so excited that we get to talk again soon because we're doing the event at Morbid Anatomy. Yes. Thank you so much. I'm very excited about that. It'll be also interesting to hear Mitch talk as well. Um, I'm definitely going to pick that up and see what I can read from him. That's cool. Cool subject matter. Yeah. We we sent Mitch your book as well. So he has it. So he's going to have looked at it too. <laughs> Yay. Okay. So well, then the pressure's familiar. on. <laughs> yeah. No, well then I'll, I'll give him a read. That's so cool. I'm glad that you're you're pairing us because that seems like a that's a cool juxtaposition also similarities yeah Yeah. exactly i think you'll like his book modern occultism um because it is also it it goes through like occultism from you know greek until now um but it's really nice to get this kind of historical timeline of how things unfolded and influenced one another over time and it's also been really interesting to hear more about pound's history uh, like you've explained um because it puts a lot of what you talk about in the book into kind of context of his life even more Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be that'll be really neat to hear because I think it's even just my touching on some of the you know the Greek history and trying to identify just even I was trying to just focus on, on Ulysses and Odysseus you know that's a very like tiny tiny portion of probably what what Mitch knows um, but there's such a vast amount of research and information to put together to even get like a cohesive timeline for where we get some of these stories or even I love uh, the, the debates, right. Where they're like, well, we've heard about this story first here, but no, no, no. 50 years later, it came from, you know, somewhere completely different. Um, So that'll be interesting to hear him talk about, but that was a challenge for putting together, you know, my book is just that there's so much information uh, and you could just do a deep dive on pound and the Greeks 
um, that could probably result in volumes of, of study, if anything, um, because he was, he was nothing if not fascinated by a good mythical tale. That's good. That's wonderful. I think I, I, I interviewed a couple of Jungian psychoanalysts recently just to find out in academia, like Jungians are so split off from like Freudians and Lacanians and others. Uh, the Jungians kind of have their own schools and things like that that are outside of mm-hmm. like, you know, standard academic discourse. Um, and it was so interesting to hear them talk about their training more because they talked about how a lot of it, they go into mythology and folk tales and things like that, because, you know, I agree, you can learn so much about the human mind and experience through looking at mythology and, and folklore. Yeah, I really did enjoy that part of uh, when I was doing my thesis, right, is is reading how, like, Yeats as a young man was exposed to all those folk tales and you know, the fairy tale stories and things like that in, in Ireland and how he basically takes those ideas and they stay with him. So even when he meets Pound later, he's still like trying to investigate some of those stories from his youth and where did those come from? And, you know, what magic is underlying those tales and can I find it? Um, that's that's really fascinating uh, to, to think about. And um, like all of the magical experiments that he conducted, even if some of them had a very high failing rate, he was curious. Um, and I think that, that I really enjoyed reading that part of, you know, Yates plus pound is just how curious Yates was at the time. And he was like undeterred by anybody's criticism um, or gosh, that's not going to work. He's like, that's fine. I'm going to try anyway. And pound was over here. I imagine as sort of maybe, a slight curmudgeon you're like well maybe you've tried something like this before uh, but he he wanted to see how it unfolded and so i think he was like grudgingly curious about um some of those some of those folk tales and some of that you know magical lore uh that surrounded yates so that was that was a really interesting part of my study yeah absolutely and it's so rich well thank you so much katrina everybody should get your book Invoking the Spirits, the Uncult Influences in Ezra Pound's Peace and Cantos. It's such a great little book. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Of course. And I look forward to seeing you more of anatomy. <gasps> yes. Sounds and good. I'm excited. All right. Oh, <laughs> that sounds awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye, Katrina. Bye. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Katrina McCook on her new book, Invoking the Spirits, The Occult Influences in Ezra Pound's Peace and Cantos. For more, you can join us on Sunday, March 10th at 1 p.m. New York City time, live online via Morbid Anatomy Museum, where Katrina will be presenting her work more in depth alongside Mitch Horowitz, who will be talking about modern occultism and the need for a limitless search. If you're going to buy Katrina's book or any of my books through Amazon, why not go to the homepage at renderingunconscious.org and click on the link provided there. Due to the suggestion of one of our Rendering Unconscious listeners, I have joined the Amazon Affiliates program, and if you use the link provided on my website or on the Rendering Unconscious homepage, uh, you will kick back 50 cents or so to the podcast when you make your purchase. Every little bit helps, and I greatly appreciate it. Be sure to check out previous episodes of Rendering Unconscious podcast featuring Katrina McCook, Rendering Unconscious episode 38, where Katrina presents her work on automatic writing and philosophy in Ezra Pound's Peace and Cantos. It was a lecture given at the Brunenberg Castle in Murano, Italy, at our conference, Rewriting the Future, 100 Years of Esoteric Modernism and Psychoanalysis of 2019. And Rendering Unconscious, episode 65, is the full panel where Katrina presents her work alongside anthropologist Dr. Siegfried de Rauschowitz, who's also the grandson of Ezra Pound. He presented on Enemoser and Pound. 
Rendering Unconscious has its own Instagram page now. You can follow Rendering Unconscious at Instagram. And you can call, follow me at Rawson underscore, R-A-W-S-I-N underscore at Instagram and Twitter. Or Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23 at TikTok. As always, huge thanks to Carl Abrahamson for providing the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. You can check out all of his work at carlabrahamson.com. That's Carl with a C and Abrahamson with two S's. You can also check out his indie label, Highbrow Lowlife, at highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. And now the song, A Trance to Alter Consciousness, by the newest album that I've done with Pete Murphy, Magic City available at petemurphy.bandcamp.com You can find other music of mine with Pete Murphy if you search for our names in Spotify. That's Vanessa Sinclair and Pete Murphy. As always, links to everything can be found at renderingunconscious.org and in the show notes for this episode. Thank you. Enjoy. Changing, seemingly, a trance. Challenging the innovation of sound. To him, above all, in a contract. And in a symmetry that movements that the subject, gestalt, whose pregnancy, species, though its motor, my phone. You look like, perhaps you are. I'm not my total self. Tired, chlorophyll, water, plastic. Burrows. If he, this is all very good. Nothing to do with. There is a need to be. Creates a transitional space to alter consciousness. To and for our collaborators at all times. Third minds everywhere of higher mind lost generation they agreed that would mark the arrival of adult women of course but I am being birthed your friends off the final light in the water. A gunman. He wasn't a gunman. Science fiction. To live this way. Filled with ghosts and friendship and the floor. A union of the two. At all times, Third minds everywhere. 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 <laughs>